mix of managers and label people. Kevin, are you there? Hello? Can you hear me yes. now? Now we Yay. hear you, Kevin. Yay. Hooray. 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 See, Kevin's problem is he's doing sign language on the radio, too. Uh-huh. And, we, <laughs> and Kevin, we did not explain to you that this is actually verbal and not the sign language kind of Audio broadcast. only. Okay. Sorry. My apologies. I messed that part up. Okay. Right. So, Kevin, uh, we have some friends on the board and at uh, FMC from William Patterson and uh, people we've met. Uh, Michael Harrington, if you know Michael. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, Walt Madonna, he's a friend of mine. Uh-huh. Uh, Benji Rogers, we've had on the show here as well. Benji's great, yeah. Great. Ken Umazaki, we also know. All right, too. Ken as well. So we're Ken not. Is also amazing, yeah. Yes, great bunch of folks. We're not strangers. So why don't you tell us what FMC is for the listeners and why it was formed? So uh, the Future of Music Coalition was formed about 16 years ago. It is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. that uh, works um, sort of at the nexus of technology, music, and policy. Um, We try to make sure that musicians have a voice in the policy issues that impact them. And we look at policy in a broad way. So we're thinking about a whole broad range of issues, everything from copyright to um, bread and butter issues like access to health care, affordable housing, um, uh, some issues that you know may seem pretty straightforward, like uh, funding for the arts, uh, the, you know, support for the National Endowment for the Arts, and that kind of thing. But also some of the more infrastructural kinds of issues uh, with communications technologies that impact musicians' abilities to uh, reach uh, audiences, um, like net neutrality, for example, is an issue that we've worked on quite a bit over the years. Um, we sort of we sort of think of the programmatic work that we do as three big buckets, uh, which is research. Uh, we commission and uh, original research and try and get uh, concrete data on what's happening out there in the world. Um, educational work, uh, communicating essentially, I guess, mostly with musicians, but also with everybody else in the industry to help them understand the structures and systems that are in operations because knowledge is really power. And then advocacy, uh, which can be advocacy directly with government officials or helping helping uh, musicians have a voice in the process and help bridge the language gaps and communication gaps between um, the music community and the people um, with the power to be allies to them. Right. Um, and what's so, your yeah, role? It's a, it's a lot of fun. And your role? My role is, is my role is a national uh, organizing director. Um, end up doing a little bit of everything. Um, I started out just doing communications and blogging and that kind of thing, and 
over the years, like my, my personal role has grown. Uh, um, at this point, I'm sort of um, running the whole policy side of things. Um, but, uh, you know, as a small organization, we all get to work on a lot of different projects together. And it's actually quite a bit like being a musician. You wear a lot of different hats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's the hottest thing now? Oh, gosh, there's a lot going on. Well, on Friday, we just had the uh, big news about uh, the health care bill, which mm-hmm. fell apart. Thank goodness. And um, that was actually pretty exciting for us. Uh, we had been... Uh, we were the, one of the first organizations to do research on the issue of musicians' access to uh, health insurance. Um, back, I think, in 2003, we did our first study. Our most recent study on the issue was uh, in 2013, and we found uh, that before the Affordable Care Act, uh, musicians lacked health care at three times the rate of the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we not wanting to go back to that time, not wanting to go back into uh, a system that allowed um, people people to... So many musicians have access to healthcare for the first time in their careers, and we don't want to see that rolled back. So we've been monitoring that issue really closely and expect to continue to be watching that closely. Mm-hmm. Um, big developments coming up at the uh, Copyright Office. There's a study that they're undertaking on Section 512, um, and we just filed some comments on that. Um, Can you explain that? Explain 512 and all that. Sure. So when I say Section 512, this will get really technical really fast, so bear with Mm -hmm. me here. Mm -hmm. Um, Section 512 is uh, a part of the Copyright Act um, uh, uh, regarding the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. that allows for uh, a sort of notice and takedown procedure. So if you are a, um, a rights holder or musician who owns their own rights or a record label or a publisher, that you see um, uh, illegal copies of your work or unauthorized copies of your work online, you have there's a procedure that's set up to inform the service provider website or app or whatever um, that there's hey there's an illegal copy of my stuff there take it down and um, if they comply if the service complies with the notice and takedown procedures they have a, a layer of protection what's called a safe harbor um, or uh, so they're not um, liable for that copyright infringement if it's coming from a third party uploader so if somebody uploads something to a website without the knowledge and the uh, the service doesn't have knowledge of it but you as a as a rights holder you see that somebody's uploaded a copy of your music you let the rights holder know i'm sorry you let the service provider know mm-hmm. and uh, they're obligated to take it down um under the terms of that are spelled out in in uh the dmca mm-hmm. now um this is this gets controversial uh because Many people think it's not working very well, um, and uh, for smaller and smaller and medium-sized entities, you know, like the biggest bigger companies can afford to invest in uh, monitoring technologies to try and keep up with the volume of infringement that's happening, and so they, they basically build robots to send automated 
takedowns. They search the internet for illegal copies of work that they own and uh, get it taken down. But the little guys don't have access to those kinds of technologies. And so, um, or if they do, you know, like they're prohibitively expensive or they can only do it for a couple albums in their catalog or, um, so one of the things that the copyright office is looking at is how can we make this system, um, more effective? Uh, it was written, the, the statute, the law was written at a time before, um, they anticipated the volume of infringement that's happening. And I think that if, um, the music community and the technology community actually put their heads together. They can come up with some concrete solutions, some viable paths forward that you know, balance the protections, the safe harbor protections, which are important and have allowed for the flourishing of a lot of really great services that musicians enjoy using and benefit from, uh, but also make sure that musicians have some meaningful recourse uh, to protect their work. So when you, when you mentioned the little guys, are the Future Music Coalition, is it representing more independent artists or is it independent artists and independent labels? Is it both? Well, so we, I guess we sort of put, we, we put musicians first um, and musicians require or may make use of a, a bunch of different kinds of partners in bringing their work to the marketplace and um Independent labels have been important allies to musicians over the years, and uh, so there's some. And we're we're big fans of A2IM, um, the trade organization that represents independent labels, and we work with them on some things. Uh, and uh, you know, I think a lot of us um, personally come from uh, the, the background in the independent music world. Uh, Jenny Toomey and Kristen Thompson, uh, two of the founders of the organization. Uh, ran the Simple Machines label in the 1990s and uh, through zines and um, guidebooks and things, I think are personally responsible for probably hundreds of little independent labels getting off the ground for the first time. You know, so many so many musicians run their own label at this point as a vehicle for getting their own music out. There's a lot of natural affinity. Um, but, you know, when conflicts arise, I think we always end up siding with musicians first. Now, as a coalition, do musicians join the organization or they just look to it for support? Yeah, so we're not a membership organization like the Grammys where you join and you send in your membership fee every year. We're more, we're not exactly a think tank either. We're sort of in between. Mm -hmm. um, so if you sign up, you can get action alerts uh, to get notified of issues that you can be personally involved in. Um, but you can also make use of we make all the all the work that we do. We make all the information available for free, and we put it all online so it's accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Um, want to go back to when you represent, for example, when you're talking to the copyright board, and let's say you're trying to increase the statutory rate, which has been nine point one cents for. Since I was dealing, I was at Universal Music Group. Uh, using it, and that was in 06 when I left, and it's been 9.1 since since before then even. When you're talking about that, uh, it would benefit art, uh, songwriters, it would benefit publishers. Yet you have the major labels generally that, from what I understand, do not want an increase in the statutory rate. But 
the major labels also own many of the major publishers. So there's that conflict of interest there. How do you guys deal with that? And am I sort of barking up the wrong tree or am I thinking? Well, no, that's a, I mean, that's a great, that's a great um, question. And that is like one of those sort of, you know, with so much cross ownership and so much consolidation of ownership, it does impact, uh, you know, it impacts the way that all of these issues play out in before all of the very various bodies that uh, determine how artist compensation works. I think we start by trying to do educational work to make sure that people know how um, compensation works for musicians. We've put together some helpful um, flow charts and uh, diagrams and things so people understand on a basic level. Um, where the, how the money flows on the sound recording side, how the money flows on the composition side, and uh, you know how it gets from point A to point B. So starting there, um, because we are not um, rights holders or publishers or, or um, a trade organization ourselves, we don't typically participate in um, proceedings. Uh, we, we can't be a we can't be considered a party to those kinds of proceedings in that direct way. Um, that has to be left to people that actually represent um, in a more in a more like legal way um, the interest of uh, various rights holders or authors. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a I, I think one of the things that we talk about in a broad sense too is. Um, the importance of um, looking at uh, these issues of ownership consolidation at, and the way that they impact artist compensation artist, artist compensation issues as sort of it's, it's important to put some independent voices forward too. It's important to understand the way that yeah, all of the the biggest players in the field are uh, making a lot of the calls that impact everybody. But uh, the preferred outcome that a major label ha might have might not be the same preferred outcome for every musician. And so we try to illuminate some of those subtleties and, um, and advocate for structures and systems that work for the full diversity of musicians. Um, and, and, you know, if, if, just to boil it down to um, something very simple, Oh, I'd love to see the rate go up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, who, um, and we should mention names, actually, who in Congress are really pro-musicians that you can lobby, for the most part? Sorry, could you, ask, could you say that again? I said, who in Congress, what representatives or senators, are pro-musicians that you can get some results from lobbying? Uh, you know, I think we have kind of an open door at almost everywhere. Um, I mean, there are individual um, legislators that I can call it as being extremely supportive on particular issues and has led the charge. Um, you know, I think uh, Jerry Nadler from New York has been incredible on the performance right issue. Mm -hmm. It's a very important issue for, for musicians. Um uh, you know, Senator Patrick Leahy, who led the charge on um, LPFM and expanded access to low-power FM station and resulting in 
uh, you know, hundreds of new LPFM stations being launched around the country. Uh, as a real champion, but everybody, there's so many issues, um, and there's so much complexity, and it doesn't break down along partisan lines at all. It makes it a really interesting set of issues to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, somebody like, uh, um, you know, somebody like Marsha Blackburn, who has uh, been really great on uh, some songwriter compensation, songwriter compensation issues, um, has been less good on other issues like net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like we, what we try to do is sort of make the same case to everybody and um, see where it resonates and uh, work with people on the stuff that we agree about and respectfully disagree on the stuff that we don't agree about. Now, do we have a better chance or a chance to get a performing rights uh, through on terrestrial radio? I think we got a shot. Um, I think that we have, um, there's more momentum than I've, um, than I've seen and more momentum than people have, uh, who've been working on the issue for decades have seen, really. I think uh, last year, uh, one of the exciting things that happened was that the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, the organization that represents, um, you know, community stations um, all around the country, um, endorsed the idea um, and endorsed the Fair Pay, Fair Play Act, which was the piece of legislation uh, introduced by Jerry Nadler mm-hmm. um, that would create a, uh, a performance right. And the reason, the reason that you know, there's a number, there's a number of reasons that they got behind um, that bill. Um, one of the reasons is that the bill is just very generous in terms of the carve out that it provides for college and community stations so uh it would mean that for um those any non-commercial station they would only have to pay a hundred dollars annually um uh so it wouldn't be overly burdensome at all can i just can uh, i just uh kevin can i just break in for one sec just because i'm sure there are some people listening they who don't know what we're talking about when yeah let's let's, yeah when can you you, yeah talk about just for terrestrial radio uh, who gets paid a royalty and who does not when a song is played? Sure. And say what so terrestrial radio is, too. People are very surprised to learn this. So um, the United States is kind of unique in uh, the developed world in that um, when music is played on the radio, the songwriter gets paid, the publisher gets paid, but the performer doesn't get paid, and the record label doesn't get paid. Um Every other kind of uh, music broadcasting that we can think of, uh, from streaming, uh, interactive streaming and non-interactive streaming, uh, satellite radio, cable radio, um, you know, even YouTube, they pay everybody. They pay the songwriter, they pay the publisher, they pay the performer, and they pay the record label. Um, terrestrial radio, AMFM radio, has this long-standing exemption, this loophole in the law, um, that allows them to use the work of performers and sound recording copyright owners and not pay them for anything. And they've had that um, really from the beginning. Now, um, it's an embarrassingly short list of countries that we're on that ha- continue to not compensate performers when their music gets played. It's like us and North Korea, um, 
not sure where Afghanistan is now, but China, uh, Uganda maybe. It's, it's not the greatest company to Iran, be in. I think everybody Iran. else is yeah. sort of uh, Iran, I think, settled yeah. this issue. We're like the axis of evil when it comes to paying performance. <laughs> yeah, the axis of exploitation. Yeah. And how um, many years has this been floating around trying to get passed? Well, I know it's been I know it's been a while. I know it's been an issue that Frank Sinatra was working on back in the day. In the fifties. Um, yeah. And they've tried different strategies. Um, the 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 bill that we have before us now is really the best bill that we've seen, and I think it's the most likely to succeed. The principal opponent to making this change has always been the National Association of Broadcasters, which is the lobby group representing the big commercial broadcasters, the iHeartRadio and Cumulus and um, the big guys. And so, um, you know, when we've seen community radio come out in support of... um, finally making sure that musicians get compensated the way that they do on other forms of music broadcasting the way that they do in the rest of the world. Um, it's exciting and it's encouraging, but it's not particularly surprising. It's always been the little non-commercial stations and the mom-and-pop stations that has been so supportive of the music community and so vital in helping musicians access audiences um, over the years. So it's, you know, it, But it's a, it's a great feeling to see... Um, those, those community community-minded folks really stepping up. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, uh, Dave. And I think that we're I think we got a good shot. I think it's you know it's especially important. People people sometimes think that this is only an issue for the the big superstars that get lots and lots of radio airplay. But so many independent musicians uh, get uh, international airplay. You know, like I talk to people and. Um, you know, maybe they don't get a lot of play in the U.S., but for some reason they're big in Belgium or maybe jazz artists. There's a lot of jazz radio in continental Europe. It's very popular um, because of the, what, what are called reciprocity rules. If an American artist is getting played in Europe, they can't collect that money because a European artist who gets played in the U.S. doesn't get paid. So until we fix the law on our side, they're not going to pay us over there. Mm. Is all that money in the other in the foreign countries held in a fund, and there will be a retro check paid, oh, or box. yeah, or oh, no. I wish. Pro- so probably not. Sadly, Maybe. no. Yeah, that's right. good for them. Sadly, no. I think I think we've sort of lost um, that that money has has. Um, you know, there there are some cases where there might be some kind of a black box that it's sitting in, but. Um, in, in general, I think it gets dispersed across the larger pool of artists who they are paying out. Good job, Kevin. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a tweet for you. <laughs> we have a tweet for you. And this is from at uh, Paolo Cohello Band. And he says, hi, Kevin. What do you believe is the number one challenge in the near future of music? Is it money, health care, piracy? Hmm. Well, there's so many challenges, like different musicians... Um, different musicians' career arcs are so different, and um, so it really there's so much diversity in the field. Um, so it's it can be difficult to generalize. Um, I think that 
Um, Are you thinking? One thing that I would say is sort of a, a, like a big, a, a topic where there hasn't been enough conversation and it has huge implications for so many people working now is um, there's, um, as you know, the business models that we're working with are constantly changing and everybody's got a degree of comfort, comfort with change itself. But... Um, the changes that have that happen have to be able to account for a diversity of models, or else we get a sort of flattening. Yeah, um, and one of the things that I'm worried about um, moving forward is getting stuck in a system that is not set up to honor the kind of diversity of musical traditions, and particularly diversity of scale. Um, different m artists come to the marketplace with different kinds of assumptions about the size of their ultimate, you know, like different kinds of goals, different kinds of um, communities that they're operating in. And more and more, it seems like the financial structures and the assumptions um, in terms of career arc and everything are based around the idea of exponential growth up and up and up and up and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, it's important to make sure that our industry is built in ways that don't necessarily require an artist to have a huge, you know, an exponentially larger fan base to be able to sustain their career. Um, it's important for um, the kind of diversity that uh, has naturally organically developed as you know among different genres and different scenes um, rather than get sucked into sort of a one size fits all model of the music business, we need to make sure that we're finding ways to preserve the diversity of business models. That's interesting. Okay. So that would be high on my yeah, list. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes a good point. Very good point. Want me to read another tweet? Yeah. Okay. We'll go to another, uh, tweet. another tweet for you. This is from uh, Chris Fuchs. He said, I noticed that you are a big advocate for grassroots arts and community groups. Can you explain more how that works? And if you could get into, since you are a national organizing director, talk about how you what, you, what that means, how you organize groups of people to move in a certain direction, especially like-minded people, especially, and especially now with what's going on in this country. Yeah, well, so grassroots can, can mean so many different things too, and you know, part of it is like as an organ, as a philosophy of organizing, we come to it with the assumption that um, communities are capable of identifying um, the needs of their community and coming up with solutions. They don't just they just don't necessarily have the resources to execute them. Um, uh, so when we talk about like grassroots and, 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 you know, it starts like so much of, of what's exciting about music starts at the community level and, um, uh, in, uh, in, uh, like, it's, you know, you, you can see that sort of in, um, 
live music, uh, you know, a, a lot of my work um, before I joined FMC was in organizing all ages music venues around the country, kids throwing shows in warehouses and basements and um, helping them be able to inter- effectively be advocates for themselves. A lot of that kind of cultural work is easily misunderstood or underappreciated by people in positions of power. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's just helping them understand how to um, keep the neighbors happy or communicate effectively with the city council if they're thinking about imposing a new noise ordinance or something like that. Helping people understand how to be advocates for themselves. I think there are a lot of people that would um, tell musicians that their voices don't matter, that they should, should essentially shut up and sing, um, you know, that their job is mm. to be entertainers and um, that's where their role ends. And I think that what what we really try to emphasize is that um, musicians' voices matter in across the broad array of policy issues. And, you know, especially in a time like now when we need, uh, we need as many voices of dissent and as many people standing up for free expression and, um, you know, for music has always been a vehicle for uh, historically marginalized communities to assert themselves. And so that role is needed, certainly, certainly now as much as any time in our, our history. Um, on a practical level, um, as a small nonprofit, we have to be sort of selective about how we can invest the, the resources that we have and figure out where, um, where the pressure points are and where we can be most, most useful. Um, but one of the things we, we do try to do is just elevate um, conversations that are um, happening in different kind, different geographic, geographic communities and see if there's some commonality. Uh, I think there's an old Chumbawamba song. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's something about how isolation is the biggest barrier to change. Um, and so many of the conflicts that happen um, the challenges that individual musicians face in terms of their careers, but also the challenges that local music communities face in terms of their interfacing with government or dealing with gentrification or changes that are happening in their community, finding finding ways to make um, community music work sustainable. Um, those are those are it can feel like you're experiencing it for the first time and nobody has ever had this problem before. And then as you talk to more people. We're doing similar kinds of work in other places. You start to realize that so much of it is the same dynamics happening all over and over. And the power in that is when we get people starting to communicate with each other um, and sharing their stories and sharing what they've learned and sharing, you know, effective strategies. Here's how, uh, you know, I was effectively able to um, get the city government on board with investing money in um, an arts incubator in my city and, and help uh, help them understand that the um, grassroots music work was achieving all of the, the 
kinds of civic goals that they were already trying to accomplish effectively. Um, developing best practices or just elevating the stories of people who are making stuff work uh, effectively. And that's, you know, that, that's true on that kind of local level, and I think it's true um, in some of the bigger business discussions as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, might I ask, how are you guys funded yeah, um, so we uh, are, at, like like any nonprofit, it can be a little tight. Um, we have, over the years, um, had the benefit of getting um, some support from uh, the philanthropic sector, found family foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's, that's been really central <laughs> over the years. Uh, we have a um, um, earned income that we make through this. Um, events that we've put on, conferences and things in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we get a little bit of corporate support like a lot of nonprofits do uh, through event sponsorships and that kind of thing. Um, and individual donations uh, from a constituency of music musicians and uh, uh, other allied folks who see the value in our work and want to see it continue. Um, and to them and to the musicians especially who um, you support us. We're just incredibly grateful. Um, now, with Trump talking about cutting all of the uh, funding for the arts, is this going to hurt you at all? Well, we have gotten some funding from the National Endowment for the Arts in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not a current grantee, but uh, you know it's possible that we might apply for something again in the future. Um, I can tell you a little bit about what that process is going to look like. Uh, I think people have seen some of these headlines about the uh, elimination of the budget for the National Endowment for the Arts and thought maybe that it was sort of a done deal, that Trump just puts down the budget and that's the way it's going to be. It's actually quite a bit more complicated that ultimately that decision will be up to Congress and specifically to the Appropriations Committee. Now, um, because of the valiant efforts of Americans for the Arts and other allied organizations. We're a national co-sponsor of Arts Advocacy Day. We get um, hundreds of folks out every year to storm uh, Congress and tell them why federal art support is so important. Um, because of that work has been going on for years, they've built up kind of a firewall at the Appropriations Committee. So the folks that are actually making the decisions on what gets funded have a pretty strong sense of why the arts are so important. So I'm optimistic that regardless of what crazy stuff the president is saying about eliminating funding for the arts, I think we have a good shot. I'm taking nothing for granted, and it's going to be important for us to all be noisy about this in the coming weeks and months. Um, But I think that we have a good shot at preserving uh, funding both for the National Endowment for the Arts, but also for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, as well as the National Endowment for the Humanities. Great. All right, we have, with five minutes left, I just want to sort of do a quick recap of, of how you do things, because let's say it is uh, an, an issue comes up that you guys decide this is one of the main issues that we're going to put our focus on and we're going to get noisy about. So can you tell us what all the tools are 
and all the processes and all the things, steps you take in order to get noisy, in order to try and, and create change. And some of it you might have said, but if you could just sort of recap it and kind of give us, we have about five minutes left, sort of give us. A, sure. Well, it's it's like in the same way that no musician's business model is going to look the same as another musician's business model. Like the strategy for making change on one issue might be totally different from the strategy for making change on another issue. It might interface with different pieces of government, or it might not even interface with government directly at all. Um, but I guess it sort of starts with stepping back, um, doing your homework, uh, talking to a lot of people, making sure that we actually understand the issue and understand how it impacts um, a diverse array of different musicians. Um, one of the things that we really emphasize in the research that we do is making sure that we're capturing the diversity of the field. Um, it's diversity in terms of age, education level, geography, but also genre. Um, um, I, I, so, you know, research is one important step in um, making change because one of the first things that people tell you when you go and talk to government folks is they want to see hard data and evidence. That You know, we got started doing research for the first time um, back 15 years ago um, at the suggestion of folks who, in working in government who told us that your case will be a lot stronger if you can point to some, some hard data. And so we built this um, capacity um, for collecting that data and, and um, analyzing it thoughtfully and credibly. Um, so that's one of the tools, uh, one of the important tools and strategies to be able to use. Um, uh, uh, I guess another general strategy that applies across the broad range of issues is talking to everybody, um, talking to people um, regardless of whether we agree with them or not, just understanding the lay of the land and understand what motivates people, looking for um, places where uh, collaboration can be possible and understanding where it won't be possible. Um, but finding, you know, you can find allies in unexpected places sometimes, and that can be really valuable. Music is a relatively small industry in the grand scheme of things. It's incredibly culturally influential, and it's incredibly powerful, and it's the most important thing in my life in a lot of ways. But as an industry, it's not very big. And so to get stuff done, we have to have allies. Um, and so movement building can be about, uh, you know, finding finding other kinds of constituencies that you can stand alongside. So sometimes it's community broadcasters. Sometimes it's folks in the public interest sector. Sometimes it's educators. Um, you know, as, as we were working um, last year opposing... The, one of the one of the big telecom mergers that you know potentially had impacts on artists' ability to access audiences. I found myself uh, working alongside folks from um, the Parents Television Council. They're the people that like count how many swear words are in like episodes of network TV. 
you know, like not people that I probably have a lot of common in common with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we can find some some common ground, it's great to work together with somebody like that. Wow. Okay. Well, Kevin, it has been great speaking with you because we need yeah, to uh, wrap this up. A little odd topic for us, but very good because we know <laughs> we know the uh, coalition existed, and I knew it existed for the good of the musician. But you really. Um, gave us some more nuts and bolts definitely so kevin thank you very much for coming on music biz 101 and more thank you so much it's so good to be here i apologize for, for my tardiness and um and, and i appreciate the audience the opportunity to speak to your awesome audience great thank you kevin kevin erickson future music thank you again kevin appreciate it take care bye so i stuttered a bit there was yeah well foot. you know yeah. We're really not into politics a lot, and uh, that's really what he's does. It's you know, they're lobbying, and mm-hmm. it's dry in terms of the music biz, but it's so vital. Mm-hmm. And if you ever got the performing rights bill through, it'd be zillions of dollars for musicians. Uh, and um, well, we had Richard Burgess, you know, all of that. It's very important. When we had uh, Richard Burgess on the the head of A Two I M, who he right. just mentioned, yep. um, he mentioned specifically that there are labels that small labels that make almost all their revenue from Sound Exchange. Yeah, and Sound Exchange is uh, collects performance revenue for recording artists and labels right. from internet, non-interactive digital transmissions, yeah. Sirius Pandora. That and that's what we, that's what does not happen from traditional AM FM radio, which we exactly. said. So yeah, if that came through big windfall, you would think for the industry, plus yeah. all the international. So yeah. it is very important. It is a big deal. And I'm glad those guys are down there doing it. Yeah, we, yeah. we do need them. Yeah, yeah. You don't realize it, but we do Absolutely. need them. And, and I need you, and it, it's so great to have you back from well, assignment. Well, I'm very happy to be back, and uh, I listened through shortwave radio, <laughs> and you sounded great. And Aaron, I want to thank Aaron for sitting in for me. I did a great job, Dynamite. Aaron Van Dynamite, he killed it. He really did. He blew it up. He blew up the airwaves. There were very few yeah. waves left. Yeah, boogie boarding with Aaron. So uh, this has been Music Biz 101 more. We want to thank Kevin Erickson, National Organization of the Rising Director of Music. And next and, week... Uh, Next week is Tom Mullen, mm-hmm. uh, former, at this that point, will be former, former big VP of Sony Legacy. His card said big VP. Right. We want to thank Ashley Weltner, who is our producer engineer. Thank you, Ashley Weltner. And we want to thank Rob Fusari, whose song is playing right now and who is generously donated to us so that we could go to Nashville, Tennessee. So we want to thank him. And we thank you for listening. Thank you for all of your tweets. Please tune in every week and check out the podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher. I'm sorry, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Music Biz 101 and more is what you want to look for. For Professor Esteban Marconi and Ashley Welter, I am your professor, David Kirk Phillips, saying not hello. I'm saying adios!